John chapter 12. Moved through the first few verses of it last week. Got, it, got out of John 11 and into John 12 this last week of the Lord's earthly life. And, uh, and an intense week it will be. And, and it's uh, off to a running start. As we looked at, Jesus was at a, a dinner that was being held in his honor in the town of Bethany, about two miles out of Jerusalem to the east, a little to the southeast. We'll see that. I've got a number of slides to show you this morning. But um, Jesus is there at a, a guy by the name of Simon the leper at his house. Mary, Martha, and uh, now famous Lazarus are there. Lazarus is sitting at the table while uh, Jesus is there. And, and uh, I mentioned last week, imagine the crowd that would be there. There would be his disciples, uh, all 12 of them. We know that. And we know Judas is there because he sort of plays a part in that first uh, deal when Mary anoints the Lord's feet with, her, with oil and, and washes them with her hair. And, and uh, Lazarus rebukes her and he ends up being rebuked by Jesus himself. And uh, uh, because his heart was so wrong. Uh, and yet uh, we see here at this, this dinner, there's, there's Simon the leper who evidently had been healed by Jesus prior. I don't see him having leprosy at this time. I think I refer to him as Simon the used to be leper. Uh, and, and then Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, his friends, deep friendship, deep close relationship. They were part of Jesus's inner circle. And they're there and and uh, then this beautiful act of worship that Mary does as she comes. We talked about worship last week. We talked about uh, the fact that worship is defined. I, I found a 190-year-old uh, entry in an in a 1828 uh, Webster's Dictionary that defined worship as um, extravagant love and um, extraordinary submission, extreme sub submission. And, and truly, that's what worship is. We talked about that, that when we sing, yeah, we are worshiping. That's an act of worship, but all of it flows from really uh, an attitude of the heart. So, and, and the question becomes then, what's the attitude of my heart? Am I just getting up to sing some songs or, or am I doing this for you, Lord? Uh, from time to time, I've had people complain about the worship, not here, but in over the years. And and they'll come and say, well, pastor, I don't like, you know, those, the contemporary songs, or I don't like this, or I don't like that. And, and my response is as lovingly and as gently as possible to remind them we're not doing it for you. We're doing it for the Lord, and we're inviting you to come along. And, and, uh, and I'm not led to go and try to horse our worship team into doing it the way you want. And so, uh, and again, it's just an area to guard our hearts over, because truly, it, it, I re you guys... I'll, yeah, I'm in a rabbit trail right now, so, so deal with it. <laughs> I was in a church that we lost our worship team, and this was before we could do the recorded stuff that, like, what we've done with the computers and all. And, and we lost our worship team, and the pastor of the church had this, this organ at his house in his living room, and he used to go, and he would just sit and sing his just heart out to the Lord all by himself in his living room. And he wasn't a musician. That's all I'm going to say about that. But, uh, <laughs> and, and the organ, it, it actually ran on one of those reels for the songs he didn't know. It, was a, it would automatically plink the keys. And, and, and yet the organ, it, the, the beat of this organ was kind of oom-pa-pa, 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 oom-pa-pa. And it was like that. 
And we had, our church was founded by a guy that had been a Reno and Vegas entertainer that had become a pastor. And this guy knew how to lead worship. And, um, and we went from that to an, an interim time with a couple of people that would come in and help us to uh, Bobby, uh, our pastor, just loved him brought his organ down to the church and every Sunday morning and every Thursday night he'd get up there and we would worship to mpapa 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 and and it, it would just go on and at first I struggled I'm going to be very just very transparent with you I was like oh lord I can't suffer this music mpapa how do I and the Holy Spirit so deeply convicted my heart. And that's when I learned that worship is an attitude of the heart. It really has very little to do with the music. Do we enter in? I mean, I'm blessed. I, I come in to the sanctuary sometimes in the middle of the worship service here as, as I finish things up in my office. And uh, I come in and, and I, I pray at the back of your heads. You don't know that until now, but... Um, <laughs> And, and, and I'm blessed when I see people just entering in and, and just worshiping the Lord because, again, it's an attitude of the heart. And we see Mary's attitude, and see how I'm going to tie this back. Um, we see Mary's attitude in worship here in, in simply soaking the Lord's feet with this a year's wages perfume. I mean, this was a big deal. It was everything she had. A great lesson in there in giving everything we have to the Lord in worship, and, and that was her act of worship. There wasn't any music going on, but boy, was she worshiping, and she was setting a, a, a sort of setting a, a, a place for us to come and to draw near to the Lord's heart because she spent a lot of time at his feet, and she knew his heart. She didn't have all the stuff. She didn't have all the teaching. She didn't have, and I'm not saying that's a bad, that's a good thing. I mean, we should be, we should learn, but there's an end to our learning, we could sit here, we could come every Sunday and sit and, and be instructed and, 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 and have the Lord speak to us. And, and yet, when we go out there, is it, is it impacting my heart? Do I have an attitude of worship as I go out there and I want to worship the Lord as I share Christ with someone who really desperately needs him? Do I have an attitude of worship when I'm dealing with my wife or with your husband or children or friends do I have an attitude of worship because when when I am in an attitude of worship I'm plugged into the source Friday night as we've sat here and prayed and and as the Lord directed our prayers it became for me I'm serious it was a worship service I was just so blessed yeah can't encourage you enough to get on board with that if you'd like so anyway we looked at all of that last week and and I better get moving or let's just talk about last week <laughs> But so here it was, and it, as you remember, it's a very, very difficult time for Jesus because the posture of the religious leaders in Israel, the, the governing leaders, the Sanhedrin, now had gone from sort of gritting their teeth whenever he showed up to now they are actively out to get him. And there's an edict that's been issued. If you see this Jesus guy, let us know because we're going to capture him and we're going to haul him off and we're going to kill him which indeed would take place by the end of this week. But uh, there was a lot of work that Jesus wanted to do. And from here in chapter 12, uh, all the way through chapter 20, there's some just a fabulous, powerful instruction in this, in this letter or this account of Jesus's life that John writes. Uh, we're going to pick it back up in verse 7 here of chapter 12. Uh, this is right on the tail end of Jesus' uh, 
feet being anointed by Mary, wiping it with her hair. And, and Judas says, well, why wasn't that perfume taken from her and, and sold for 300 denarii, which is about a day's wage. So we know that it's roughly worth a year's wages. And here at 30, 40,000 bucks in today's economy, this vial of perfume uh, could have been sold for. But John, he is very clear to tell us that it was not his intention to do that. He used to pilfer the money. Remember, we looked at that, that he, he was a pilferer. He was a thief. And the word thief there, uh, it means that it was the same word we get klepto from. He was a klepto, and he used to get into the box and take what was in there. And he, he saw that as an opportunity. Boy, he missed a golden opportunity in that perfume. And so he was ticked off about that. But Jesus says, leave her alone. In verse 7, she's kept this for the day of my burial. Mary didn't know she was anointing Jesus' feet for burial. And yet Jesus did. And uh, he said, for the poor you will always have with you, but you won't always have me. Interesting. I've heard people talk about that uh, as a, a reason. And, and get this, it's kind of a Talk about taking a backwards approach. Well, the poor you'll always have with you, but you won't always have me. Jesus said that uh, sort of as an excuse to not have a heart towards the poor. Well, they're always going to be there. But that's not what Jesus was saying. He was saying exactly the opposite. There will always be opportunities to minister to the poor. But you won't always have opportunity to minister to me. And she has just ministered to me. She has just served me. Uh, I think about that in Matthew 25 when Jesus talks about uh, the judgment on the nations and where he separates the sheep from the goats. Remember, he says the, the sheep will be on my right hand and the goats will be on my left hand. And then he says, you know, uh, to the sheep on his right hand, he says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And, and, and to the people that said, well, we don't understand. We never did that to you, Lord. Uh, and he said, no, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Illustrating, again, another attitude of the heart, guys. That's what this is about. The externals are always driven by an attitude of the heart. And the attitude of the heart of somebody who belongs to him, this isn't works-based salvation, because he says, those who say, well, he talks to the goats at that point, Matthew 25, you can read it yourself, and he says, you know, you didn't come to me when I was, you didn't give me drink, you didn't give me clothing, you didn't, didn't, didn't. And, and he says, so get away. Go, get away from you. Yeah, you don't enter in uh, to what I have for my people. So it's not a works thing that he's talking about there, but it's always an attitude of the heart. And for somebody who is truly redeemed, somebody that truly belongs to Jesus, somebody that's truly filled with and operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, that'll be what marks your life. Generosity. I always tell people, uh, whenever you're in doubt, err on the side of grace. Now, there are times where the Lord has had me not help someone because he's shown me to do so would be to sort of prop them up in an area where he's wanting to take them down. And, and I could get in the way of that. But th you gotta be very, very careful. I mean, we can make mistakes on that. And again, so when I'm in doubt, I want to err on the side of grace. I want to help that person. And there have been specific times, as I said, but those have been the exception and not the rule. 
Uh, we want to be those people whose our lives are marked with generosity. Our lives are marked with being others-centered, not self-centered, but others-centered. As we move about in this life and we see things that come up, God shows us the needs. He shows us the things that are taking place. So, and if Jesus said that there, he's not going to say, well, the poor you always have with you here, and uh, so what? And, and, and that's not the, not the case at all. So, uh, and something I'm always clear to do with those things, folks, is when I'm helping someone, I want to be sure that I'm using it to build a bridge for the gospel. Uh, otherwise, um, saying that I'm fond of, I don't want to be guilty of fluffing pillows on the Titanic. You know, think about that. I mean, you know, we can go and we can make somebody some, just very comfortable in this life and, and we can meet the need and help them and do all that stuff. And, and sometimes my own evil heart goes, yeah, I really helped them. And oh man, that was so cool. I got to do that. A and yet I haven't helped them really if I'm not using that to build a bridge for the gospel, to share the love of Christ with them. Uh, very often that's how the Lord works and he gives us those opportunities, practical ministry. That's why we're involved with the international students here uh, with George Fox University. We, we have the needs come up and, and by the way, if you're interested in that ministry, it's a real blessing uh, with the people that in the body here that are involved. Uh, they show us the needs, their practical ministry. You might help a, a student move. You might uh, meet a need in some way or give them a ride. And we're planning a picnic now and some different things. Uh, but it's just so that we, again, can come alongside them and build a bridge. And we may not be, we may just be a, a cog in the wheel. We may not see any fruit from our helping with a, you know, how do you, if you spend an hour helping a student move, how do you know that you're furthering the gospel in their life? Well, we're part of a, a larger ministry. And so, you know, Paul says, you know, somebody plants, somebody waters, somebody harvests. So, yeah, we are a part of the greater picture of what God's doing in these students' lives because many of them come to a Christian university they have no idea about Christ. They have no idea about his kingdom. They have no idea what it is to live as a Christian. And our job is not, we don't want to bring them and introduce them to church. We want to introduce them to Christ. So, Verse 9, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there in Bethany. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they also might see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So here's Lazarus. I mean, th think about it. Uh, it, it he just got raised from the dead, and these guys want to kill him. So, uh, I mean, and really, how would you threaten him? <laughs> Have you thought about that? We're going to kill him. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. Uh, so, you know, he's fresh from the grave. And, and these guys, and, and the reason that they're so openly hostile towards him is he was totally getting under their skin just by virtue of the fact that he'd been raised from the dead. Remember, we're dealing with the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. What is Lazarus doing to their theology? He is messing them up. And they want to get rid of this guy. Oh, man, you know, it's, we don't believe in what just happened to this guy. And so rather than see and identify God moving and perhaps correcting their theology, they just want to get rid of the good example that their theology is wrong. 
But that's what religion does, huh? It, it, it's, it's rigid. And if you don't fit into our program, well, then you must not be part of the spiritual elite. You must not be part of our perception of how God is. And, and we know the Pharisees themselves, having codified the law to death, uh, thought that God was in that. And here are the Sadducees getting rid of any good theology that was left. God's not in that. And with both parties, remember we talked last week, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They're uniting now against Jesus and against Lazarus because he is a threat. Both of them are. And, and, and they're uniting. Actually, they were bitter enemies, but they're uniting because they both see that this Jesus, this guy that's come onto the scene and now he's raised someone from the dead, uh, that he has to go. Because the Romans are going to come in. They, remember we looked at that last week? They're gonna, the Romans will come in. They'll take away our place and our nation. Not knowing that in their rejection of him that they would lose their place and their nation. So their stance against Jesus is actually it's fracturing at this point. And, and, and their response, rather than simply get on board with what was right before their eyes, was to mount more hostility against. Verse 12, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, we call this Palm Sunday. We looked at this uh, the Sunday before Easter. That's when we commemorate it. Uh, and and the, as the Gospel of John is the only of the four Gospels. This account is in all four Gospels, by the way. It's one of the few that John's Gospel covers along with the other synoptics, the, the other three. Uh, but this is, John's is the only one that actually names palm branches. So that's how come we get the term Palm Sunday. As these guys are cutting the branches, the palm branches, they're, they're throwing them in the road ahead of him. And, uh, and, and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118. And we'll talk more about Psalm 118 a little further on here in the Gospel of John because uh, oh, it is just a highly charged messianic psalm. And this part of it, Hosanna, means save now. Uh, we'll talk about that as we go along too. So the crowd, there's a crowd that's coming out of the city. Get the scene, guys. This is a mob of people. It's, it's, in Matthew here, he says there's a great multitude, uh, of, uh, or in John, I'm sorry, a great multitude that's, that's there coming out of the city. There's also a multitude of people that's with Jesus at Bethany. The, remember, they came because they heard about Lazarus, and they said, ooh, we want to see what's happening with this guy. So there's a, a big crowd that's coming in Bethany with Jesus as he gets on this donkey, and we'll talk about that too. And, and so as he comes down the hill, there are people that are coming up the hill in the Mount of Olives, and there would be this clash of these two crowds, these huge crowds of people. Jesus' word had gotten out, and it is Passover. The people that are coming to Passover, this is Passover week, and, and, and there was a huge amount of people in the city during this time. Somewhere between one and a half and three million people would come because this is a pilgrimage feast. And so, I mean, talk about dust on the road coming with this crowd and the people and the, the screaming and the shouting and all of that. I mean, this is a scene. This is a total scene. Now, I want to take a minute or a few minutes and I want to talk to you about the Mount of Olives. Uh, next slide, please. All right, this is what the Mount of Olives looks like today. 
Now, <laughs> the, the tan color there is the Mount of Olives is the largest cemetery in Israel. It's an ancient cemetery. It's about 3,000 years old. There are tombs there that go back 3,000 years. And there is anywhere between 100 and 150,000 tombs on this mountain. Uh, it's enormous. This is a view uh, from the southeast, sort of looking up. If you look up in the top left corner, you'll see that's I put a red line there to outline the Temple Mount. So at the base of the Mount of Olives is the Kidron Ravine, okay, the Kidron Valley. And, and during Passover, they would sacrifice uh, probably 200,000 lambs. If you do the math and figure that there was a lamb for every 10 family members or so, the blood would be running in the Kidron during this time. I mean, the blood would be thick as it ran down out of the Temple Mount and into the Kidron Ravine. And so uh, this is a, 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 it's a, just a tremendous scene. Jesus would have to cross over the Mount of Olives because Bethany, remember, is on the backside of it, a little bit to the south, the southeast of the city of, of the Temple Mount. And, and the city of Jerusalem, we'll see it, the last slide here this morning, it shows the city behind the Temple Mount. And so you've got, and these tombs weren't there, not all of them were there, it wasn't this big. I mean, it was, like I said, it goes back 3,000 years. But crossing over, uh, there would have been this, this mountain that, was, that had all these tombs that went way back. Um, next slide, this is a view looking from the opposite direction at the Mount of Olives. It's in the background here. And you can see in the, the center right, the tombs I was just talking about that we were looking at on the mountain. Now you see the Dome of the Rock, the gold spot there, that Dome of the Rock, that's the Temple Mount area. Uh, and then we're gonna take this, we're gonna kind of draw a line around it uh, with the next slide and, and see where the green line is. We're gonna zoom up now and zoom up to that portion of it because I wanna share a few things with you about that. All right, now you can see where north is. We're looking east. The base of the Mount of Olives is right there. You see the highway that's beyond the wall of the Temple Mount. That's at the base of the Kidron Valley. That church right there, and go ahead and go to the next slide. That, uh, this is the Temple Mount here, and the Mount of Olives in the background, so that you kind of get an idea of, of, of this is what the Temple Mount would have looked like back then. And then there's some conjecture about that, and there's always people that have different ideas and thoughts, but uh, as near as we can figure, Herod's Temple was on this site. Go ahead. Now, so that you understand as we go forward, there's the Temple Mount looking east. This would be like if we were up on, the mount, or on mount Zion, okay? Uh, mount Zion, interestingly enough, is the highest of the three mountains that are, are uh, in Jerusalem. There's other mountains, but th it's the highest, the highest mountain is Mount Zion. The lowest one is Mount Moriah, and that's what the Temple Mount was built on, is Mount Moriah. Same place where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac and all that. And the Mount of Olives was the second highest. The Mount of Olives is about 500 feet taller than the Temple Mount. So interesting, I've, I've looked at videos over time and, and seen where people do artist conceptions of the temple, and they always show the temple up on this big hill. And it's like, no, God designed that so that no matter where you were in the city, you would look down and have a clear view of the Temple Mount. 
See, it's the lowest mountain on purpose. And I totally believe that's by God's design. So you could be on the Mount of Olives and it's a striking view coming over the top of the Mount of Olives. And in Jesus' day, the temple would have been standing uh, instead of this, the, the shrine there, the, the Muslim shrine, the, the Dome of the Rock. The temple would have been standing there and the temple faced east. So you'd be looking at the face of the temple when he came over the top of the hill and came down the Mount of Olives. So here Jesus now, he's coming into town, but he would have to cross the Kidron Valley, but there was a bridge called the Bridge of the Red Heifer that was built to span the valley. It's a very deep valley, and it's just beyond the wall there, which is also the wall of the city, the old city, the eastern wall, that was the end of the city, even though it goes on now. Uh, the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Ravine, was a very steep ravine that was just beyond the wall. So now, if you notice in the bottom here, it says Western Wall. Uh, you've seen the pictures where the Jews are up and they're praying at the Western Wall. It's also called the Wailing Wall. It's a very small part of the Western Wall uh, because there's been a lot of construction and there's, there's a lot of ruins. Uh, if you look to the right of that, there's actually pieces of the Temple Mount that have dented the road below when the, the Romans pushed the rocks, the, 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 the structure off of the Temple Mount. I mean, it's an amazing sight to see these huge stones from the structures on the Temple Mount where they push them off and they actually put big dents in the street. Still there after 2,000 years. So the Western Wall is there. Just again, I, I really like for us to have a point of reference geographically, uh, and you know, hopefully this isn't boring to you. I, I just think it, it just helps me to lock in that there's a place where these things happen. So when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane there, it's a very small olive uh, garden. There's the ancient olive trees, some of them go back to the time of Christ. Uh, that are there. i show you some pictures some other time when we're looking at the garden. But, uh, and there's a big Catholic church there to commemorate the, the Garden of Gethsemane. But that would play a pivotal part because Jesus always met with his men at the garden. It was very easy for them to cross over the Kidron and to go right into the garden. They couldn't, they had to have prearranged places to meet. They didn't have cell phones and all that. So they could just say, you know, hey, it, if we're looking for Jesus, we know we'll find him at the garden. Anyway, next slide. All right, this would be like switching around now. See, north is, is switched. Now we're on the east side. We're on the Mount of Olives. All of these tombs, look at there's rocks on the tombs. What's interesting is when the, when the Jews go, even today, if they go and they visit the tomb of one of their ancestors or, or, or the people that are in their family or whatever, uh, it's their custom to take a rock, just pick a rock up off the ground and set it on the tomb to commemorate that they visited the grave. Uh, so this is looking down the Mount of Olives. The Kidron is at the base. You see all the trees at the base of where all these tombs kind of drop off there. Um, that's uh, going down into the ravine. The Kidron is down there. And on the far right in the center would be the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, roughly opposite the Golden Gate, which is uh, sort of in the center up to the right a little bit. There's two gates there. That's the Golden Gate. That's the, the Eastern Gate of the temple, of the city. Next slide. This is what it would have looked like roughly in the first century. Just so that, again, when Jesus came down, and this would be if you were standing on the Mount of Olives, probably a little higher than that. This, it's uh, an artist's conception, but looking at the Temple Mount in the old city, you see the walls around the city. The temple was at the very eastern edge of the old city. And so uh, the Bridge of the Red Heifer in the bottom there, the bottom kind of center right, uh, going across the Kidron, they would have come in 
to the city, to the temple through that, that way. Uh, the ravine is very steep. It's steep today, but it was very steep then. I mean, over time, those things fill in. And, and, and it's said to have been very, very deep in that, in that time. So the Romans had built a classic Roman arch-type bridge going across there. So when Jesus comes over the Mount of Olives, this is what he would have seen. He would have looked down. He would have seen the Temple Mount. He would have seen all the little tiny people. I mean, it's a 1,000 feet long. Uh, it's a big structure. So... Uh, beautiful scene. I mean, I remember just catching my breath coming over the top of the Mount of Olives, thinking about the Lord coming in that last time to come into the city, dropping down into the city and looking at, just seeing this. And I understood for the first time why he wept. We'll get to that if I can pick it up and move it. So anyway, um, verse 14 then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Uh, quoting Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It uh, doesn't tell us in this gospel, but in the other gospels, it says that Jesus had a couple of his guys go into the town, probably Bethphage, which is just north of Bethany. Uh, and, and they said, when you see a, a donkey and her foal, uh, tied there, take them. And if anybody asks you, just say the Lord has need of it. And, and that's what happened. I mean, it's, again, it's remarkable. They walk up, they untie this donkey and her colt, and, and the guy comes up, he says, hey, what are you doing? And, and they said, the Lord has need of it. He goes, oh, okay. And they walk off. I mean, they steal the donkey, and the guy's good with it. They didn't steal it. It was preordained by God. But the point is, is again, it was part of God's provision for this prophecy to be carried out to the letter. And Jesus is fulfilling prophecy all over the place just by being there on this day. And we'll talk about that more as we go. Now remember, at Passover, as I mentioned, for every 10 family members, there, were, there was a lamb that was slain. Um, 200,000 lambs, if you do the math, uh, roughly on an average Passover in the first century. This is the 10th, the date here on the Greek calendar, on the Jewish calendar, I should say, is the 10th of Nisan. And this is called the day of selection. Now, Jesus, after he comes into the city, would go up on the temple mount and cleanse the temple. It doesn't tell us in the Gospel of John that that's what he's going to do. But the other Gospels say they put that here in Jesus' ministry. Now, we covered that, him cleansing the temple, when he went to the first Passover. Remember, earlier in the Gospel of John, he went up, up on the temple mount and he, he made a whip of cords and he went and turned over the tables of the money changers and said, you've made my father's house a den of merchandise and all that. And well, he does that again. And some people say, well, John puts it at the end of Jesus' ministry. The other guys put it at the beginning. And I just, my own personal opinion, again, opinion, is he did it twice. Uh, I just believe that, I mean, that temple needed cleansing. Uh, there was a, a huge deal going on up there called Annas's Bazaar. And where he had totally turned it into a marketplace and they were making mint on this thing, the priests. And they, they, had, they had moved the, the money changing and the animal and all that stuff. It used to be on the Mount of Olives, but they'd moved it right into the temple precincts so that they could make it convenient for the people to bring their animals to be, again, the day of selection. What they would do was they would have to take their lamb or their offering. If they were poor people, it could go down to a pigeon, a, a turtle dove, which is a pigeon. Um, they could take and, and, 
and they had to get it inspected by the priest to see if it was without spot. And in, in Annas' Bazaar, they would always find something after all. And so they would have to trade it. They would have to surrender their animal and get the spotless animal that the priest allegedly had found no spot with. Well, and so that, of course, came at a price. So they would go to haul out their money and, oh, well, your money's not good here. You need to have the, temp the shekel of the sanctuary, it, which was, it was a... Terranian shekel. We looked at that one time months back, but uh, and so they would have to change their money for because people are coming from all over the empire. So this whole deal is set up so that they can just fleece the people. Still goes on today, folks. Just turn on television on religious programming, and uh, I'll tell you what: I would not want to stand before God having fleeced the flock. I really would not want to do that, and and it makes me sick when people are always up there begging for bucks, wanting you, again, God's called me to be a minister. What does a minister mean? It means a servant. So I'm called to serve you. And if I got up here Sunday after Sunday and said, hey, you know, come on, you, you know, so into this ministry and all that other garbage they put out there, try to make it spiritualized, I'd be asking you to minister to me constantly. And that's not right. That's getting it backwards. It's no it, it doesn't work that way. And so anyway, these guys were, they were just, had this whole marketplace set up and Jesus did cleanse the temple on this day. Interesting though, Exodus chapter 12 talks about the day of selection. He said, you'll select a, a lamb that's without spot, uh, but then you have to take it in and examine it for four days. Take it into your home. And this is right out of the book of Exodus. And, and they'd be examining this lamb for four days. And then you could declare that it was clean and then slaughter it at twilight, which is three o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus, being the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, was presenting himself to Israel on this day, the day of selection, he would be examined by the people for the next four days as he taught in the temple courts daily in, in the precincts of the temple uh, and, and the, the, the religious leaders, the people. And I mean, there's this big hoopla going right now. They call it the triumphal entry and I beg to differ. I think it's probably about as untriumphal as you can get because the people are so misguided in their interpretations of what's going on. However, he would be examined for four days, and then the one who would declare him clean would be who? Pontius Pilate. When Jesus is on trial before Pilate, Pilate says, I wash my hands of the blood of this man. I find no fault in him. Prophetically fulfilling perfectly what is put back out of Exodus in the law. And, and so, I mean, you want to, you look at what's happening here and you start peeling away the layers. There is a huge amount of prophetic and, and, and biblical significance to what's going on on this day. Nisan 10, 14th, they would, they would reject him. He would eat the Passover with his men. And then on the day of preparation, Friday, they called it the day of preparation because Saturday was the Sabbath. Uh, he would be executed. He would, after having been found without fault. So fascinating stuff when you start digging away at it. I want to look at this from Matthew's standpoint and just take a, a couple of minutes here, read a few verses from Matthew uh, in chapter 21, verses 7 through 11. In verse 7, 
says, they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So all these people, a great multitude that's coming out of the city. Again, those who were coming with him, those who were coming out to him, they all converged. They're, they're throwing, the, they put their clothes on, on the, the donkey, which is what you did for a king who was coming uh, to visit the city. It, when, whenever they would have a state reception, this is what they did. So they're recognizing Jesus as Messiah and king, but their ideas of what they wanted in a Messiah would be very short of what he truly came for because they want him to save him from the Romans and he came to save him from themselves. Verse 10, and when he had come into the Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Interesting, the word moved there in, in verse 10 in Matthew, uh, when it says all the city was moved, uh, the Greek word is isaizde. It's where we get the word seismic. They were moved, deeply moved is, is the point. That's what it's talking about here. Uh, this word is used again further on, and it's when Jesus was executed, when he was on that cross. And remember, at twilight, when the darkness came over the land and the earth quaked, it's a size they. And so there's a physical shaking, moving, deep movement when he's crucified, but here, Something else was going on. The city was moved. They were deeply moved. They were stirred. They saw this guy coming in, and they really did think he was coming to throw off the yoke of Rome. So back to John. In, in verse 16, his disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. I think about that in Luke 24, it talks about the story with the, the road to Emmaus, which is just a few miles uh, to the west of Jerusalem. And the guys are walking there and Jesus is walking with them. They don't even know who he is. And, and, and later as he breaks bread with them and their eyes are open and they realize that he had been opening the scriptures to them after he had been glorified. There's a fulfillment that's being talked, out, talked about here. One of the many fulfillments after the resurrection and, and they said didn't our hearts just burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us as he gave us understanding as he gave us spiritual insight and and un we, they began to understand the depth of what was being said and again that's what Paul did every time the apostle Paul marched into a city he went straight to the synagogue and what did he do he reasoned with the people according to the scriptures the old testament new testament was being kind of in process then. So he's reasoning from the Old Testament about Jesus being the Messiah and the people's eyes are opened. Oh, fabulous what's going on here. And so they didn't understand it at this time, but the, it, John says they did come to understand after Jesus had risen from the dead. Verse 17, therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason... The people also met him because they heard that he had done the sign. So we have these people who are sign seekers. They're coming out. Wow, let me see some more of that. We've talked about that many times. When Jesus did the signs, he wanted to elevate their thinking to be able to see the true meaning of why he did the signs. They were attesting miracles, remember. They weren't an end to themselves. He wasn't just putting on a magic show. 
but he was doing these things that defy the laws of physics, which he owns, in order to have people identify him as having been sent from the Father. And they weren't getting it still. They hadn't gotten it through his ministry. And they still weren't coming to a fully developed faith in who he was. People were coming to believe. And remember, he, he, back when, when he rose Lazarus from the dead, he said that you might believe. And he's talking to people who already had believed, but he wanted to deepen their faith. He wanted to expand their understanding. And that's part of what's happening here. Verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world's gone after him. You know, is it, is it just me or whenever I read the word Pharisees, it's like I kind of know what's coming. <laughs> I mean, they're just so typical of, of religious guys that are clueless as to the real meaning of, of what God is, who God is and what he's about. Uh, I just, and they're, they're, they're just setting their teeth against, they just can't stand this guy. They're so wrapped up in their jealousy over Jesus having these huge crowds and they're probably standing there by themselves. And they're, look, the whole world's gone out. Yeah, things you're doing, they're not amounting. You're not, you're not getting any ground at all with this whole thing. And I want to visit the Gospel of Luke here and, and look at a few things there. And some of the Pharisees, in verse nine, or chapter 19, verse 39 of Luke, uh, through verse 44, and I'll just read it quickly because uh, I want to pull some things out there. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Uh, they weren't happy. But he answered and he said to them, If I tell you, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would cry out. Now as he drew near to the city, he saw the city and he wept over it. Interesting, we look at uh, in John chapter 11 when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, it says that he got to the tomb and he wept. That was, it's, this is a whole different Greek word. That was that, that he was simply, he was weeping, that tears were rolling down his face, tears of grief. That he was grieved, he was sad, it, and, and he wept. This word is a much bigger word when it says Jesus wept. This could be translated racking sobs. This could be translated convulsive weeping. He broke down when he came over the top of the hill and he looked out over the city, looked out over the Temple Mount, and, and saw the, the uselessness that these people's religion had become. He saw the effects of sin in the religious leaders themselves, that their hearts were so hardened towards the things of God. He saw that the people were following after lies. And they should have known, Daniel chapter nine uh, speaks of this. Daniel, I think it's 925. Uh, Daniel nine, there's a prophecy there uh, about the Lamb of God that it was made 500 years, almost 500 years before Jesus came into the city. Um, I'm going to go on here. I'll get to that in a minute. In, in verse 42, it, there uh, in Luke 19, uh, Jesus said, If you had known, even you, especially this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Uh, still are. Second Corinthians tells us that a veil lies over their hearts and it's removed in Christ. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they won't leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So when Jesus prophesies against the city, it, would, it wouldn't even be a full generation from that time. It would be uh, beginning in 66, the Romans would build a siege bank around the city um, uh, under Titus, and they would starve the city. Uh, before it was done, there would be over a million Jews in that area that would be dead. Men, women, children. Uh, when the Romans finally broke through to the city, I mean, cannibalism was going on in the city. By the time they were done, they were starving. They, they had no water, they had no food. The, the Romans literally outweighted them. And, and I mean, the accounts are absolutely horrid when you look at what happened to the city. Perfect fulfillment of the judgment that Jesus himself pronounced against the city of God for their impiety, for their, their refusal to see uh, and to, to know the day of their visitation. Uh, in Daniel 9, he uh, says, No one understand this from the going forth of the commandment to the restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Uh, the Hebrew word is heptads. It means a unit of seven, a seven-year unit. Uh, 483 years, 173,880 days from the time when Artaxerxes, the king in Persia, when he pronounced and, and released the Jews to go back and rebuild the city. From that day, using Daniel's prophecy, to this day when Jesus rides in, it's to the day that God had prophesied through Daniel beforehand that Messiah would come and ride into that city. Prophesied through Zechariah that he'd come in on a donkey. Uh, I mean, this is a very, very significant day then and now. Yeah, generally people cover this on Easter, but it's that part of the Gospel of John, and we're not going to shrink back from it. Uh, I, th I thought about it when I was preparing. I thought, you know, I, I went over this in March. And it was like the Lord said, well, so go over it again. Uh, and uh, so here we are. But the point is, this is, a, I mean, it, 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 it's the culmination of why Jesus came. And, and he's, it's the fulfillment of countless prophecies. I mean, all the prophecies about the Lamb, all the prophecies about the, the, the Messiah, uh, the, the, the stuff. I mean, it, it, this is like the pinnacle. It's, it, everything was pointing to this moment. And when Jesus comes and he looks over that city, he looks out over the Temple Mount, and, and he sees the, the crowds of people, he just breaks down. Why? Because of sin. Because he knew that less than a week from now, he would be on that cross wearing the sin of the world. Your sin, my sin, every thought, word, and deed that we've ever had that fell short of the glory of God, that's the broadest definition of sin, that he would go and wear that for us, for you, for me, and for these people. Four perceptions as we wrap up here um, of Jesus. 
There were the signs and wonder, the people that wanted the signs and wonders, Jesus. Remember, we met them back when he fed the 5,000. They came back over the lake. They wanted to say, come on, give us some more food. Moses gave the Israelites, they gave, you know, he gave the people in the the wilderness food. Are you going to give us some more food? Come on, Jesus, where's the food? I mean, and that's, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what they did. They followed him around the lake from from where he was at Mount Arbel, probably Mount Arbel, uh, all the way around to Capernaum. And he's there the next day after he fed the 5,000 and they're coming over and he says, you you want me because I fed you. Uh, he'd have been excited if, he, if, he, if they had said, we want you because we see now that you have the ability to forgive our sins because after all, only God could do both. But he, they didn't. So here we have these signs and wonders. They want a signs and wonders, Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you, we want to see some more of that stuff like he did with Lazarus. It says here in the narrative, in verse 12, that they came because they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. So, there's the signs and wonders Jesus. Uh, then there's also the political Jesus. And, and, and guys, there's a, there are people that are seeking the signs and wonders Jesus out there today. Don't even think for a minute they're not. And that movement is growing. And so is the apostasy. Because it's an apostate position that people take. When they seek Jesus as an end to himself, yeah, does he still do signs? Yeah, of course he does. He owns, as I mentioned, he owns the laws of physics. He can bend them whenever he wants. And yet, if you seek signs and wonders as an end to themselves, your ideas, your thoughts of Jesus will fall woefully short of what he's about. Those are to point to who he is, not to define who he is. Make sense? So then there's the political Jesus, the, the people that are shouting Hosanna, save now. Psalm 118, it says, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. That's what they're quoting. When they're throwing the, their clothes in the road and the palm branches and the whole hoopla there, yeah, they're, they're embracing Jesus as Messiah, but Messiah according to their own liking, not according to what he truly came for. So they want this political Jesus. Come, throw off Rome. Hey, you know, yeah. No, he is far bigger than that. And he's not there to just do our political bidding. And again, there are people that they they can kind of get sidetracked onto the whole political thing. And and no, that's not primarily what Jesus is about. I mentioned somebody the other day. I said, you know, what did Jesus have to say about politics in the New Testament? Well, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God what's God's. That's it. What did, what did Paul have to say about politics in the New Testament? Well, you don't want to be worried about the government? Obey the laws. That's it. Because, and does it mean that we shouldn't be politically oriented? Of course we should. Does it mean that I want to see legislation that prevents killing babies? Of course I do. But what it means is that we have the big picture in place and understand that Jesus isn't just there to do my political bidding. That's what these people wanted. The next is the religious. They they wanted a religious Jesus. The religious leaders would have loved it or Jesus would have just towed their line. Think about it, guys. If Jesus just towed my line, if he would just get on board with what I think is spiritual... There is so much junk out there in the religious landscape. There is so much bad doctrine. There is so much false Jesus 
because people build a Jesus that's according to them. The book of Romans, Paul warns, very clearly warns about that. Don't, don't you create God that is in subjection to your thinking? Do you realize that that's what you do when you make God out to be who you want him to be? You are making God to lower than you. That's what these people were doing. By the way, on the political Jesus, when they gave a choice to the people, who do you want me to crucify, Barabbas or Jesus? They chose to save the life of the politically oriented. He was a political insurrectionist. He didn't like Rome. And with the religious Jesus, the religious guys were in the crowd shouting crucify. If you go out to the crucifixion, you see all four of these groups still there. They're all represented. The last is a cultural Jesus. We haven't gotten to it yet, but the Greeks come to him after this in verses 20 through 26. And, and, and Jesus appeals to them. He meets them on their own turf. And we'll look at that next week. But, but with the cultural Jesus, how many people want a culturally relevant Jesus? Well, let's just make Jesus look like our culture. Let's just have him kind of woven into our thing. And again, he is in subjection to no man. Nor will he ever be. Folks, be careful. Some of that stuff looks good. Some of it's enticing. Would I like to go to a church where I'm just entertained? There's a part that titillates my flesh in that. Oh, I would love to just go get entertained. I don't have to do business about my sin. I don't have to worry about growth as a Christian. I don't have to worry about meeting God where he is instead of reducing him to where I am. Careful. The days are evil. Men are going about. They have itching ears. They're heaping to themselves teachers according to their own lusts because they don't endure sound doctrine. Not on my watch. Not here. Not ever. You guys kick me if I get off. <laughs> All right, that's an open invitation. Point is, oh, Nicholas is getting up. Uh, <laughs> anybody? He's bigger than me. I don't want to deal with Nicholas. Seriously, folks, there's just lots out there. But you know, in closing, in that group also, were true disciples. People that just loved the Lord. Simple devotion to Jesus. It reminded me of a passage in Micah chapter 6, and we'll close with this. Micah writes, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, prime calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my trans transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. A broken and contrite heart he will not despise. As we come to him, we draw near to him with our hearts. We discover that Jesus as he is, is far better in every way than Jesus that we might imagine. 
draw near, folks. Enjoy your walk with the Lord. Love him back because he first loved you. He delights in us making time for him. That's why we're putting this Friday night prayer thing out there. And I pray that people just come and get the blessing. Because I love spending time with him. I love the discipline of spending time with him. And I just want my life to be marked with doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly. That's what he looks for. Not the hoopla. Not the stuff. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for this time. Lord, fill us up with your Holy Spirit. Light a fire in our souls that, that we wouldn't have any desire to put out, that we would just want to fan and, 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 and get that glow to, to come brighter as we go along. Lord, work in us. We are so frail and sometimes so broken and sometimes we get it so wrong and yet we know that you pour out your love on us. You pour out your mercy on us and that you simply beckon us to draw closer so that you can have your way with us, that you can do that conforming work in our souls and our lives that, that causes us to think a little more like Jesus, that causes us to look a little more like Jesus. It, that as we deal in this world, that people see something different in us. They see a joy that's inexpressible. They see, Lord, that even in tough circumstances that we can simply go through because we know that we're, we're plugged into the head. We love you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for this look at the, uh, the, the not-so-triumphal entry. And we know that didn't deter you from finishing the work. We praise you this morning. Fill us up, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.